Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to Energy Weekly with me, David Blair. On the show this week, Greenland and the battle between the oil industry and environmentalists. Both the local and premier, Kupik Kleist, are very much in favour of the oil industry coming to Greenland. Mr Kleist was arguing that the country needs its financial independence from Denmark. He's arguing that the oil industry is one way for the country to do that. High oil and gas prices push up costs for the global mining sector. The big problem we're looking at in the second half of this year that we're already in is a simple scarcity of availability in this type of equipment. At some point, the problem is not the cost of getting a drill. It's the simple lack of availability of any drills. And we ask whether integrated oil companies have a future or will others follow the example of ConocoPhillips and split in two? One of the great advantages of being an integrated oil company for many, many decades was that you could offer refining capacity to countries that had resources but no refining capacity. That's no longer really valid because oil-producing countries now always build their own refining capacity. And secondly, there's a complete glut of refining capacity around the world. Let's start this week's show in Greenland, the setting for a battle between environmentalists and the oil industry, which is trying to exploit the last undiscovered oil frontier in the world. Joining me on the line from Greenland is the FT's energy editor, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Sylvia, you're in this extraordinary place. Before we move on to anything else, can you just tell us what it's like? Yes, I'm here in Nuuk, the capital of Greenland, the world's largest island, but with a population of just 56,000 people. Nuuk itself has 15,000 people. It's a very tiny place. It's got two sets of traffic lights, lots of coloured houses that you might have seen on picture postcards. I'm here in the summer, so there isn't much snow on the ground. But it's been raining, so I haven't had sunny, snowy plains, unfortunately. It does feel quite isolating being here because there are no roads between cities in Greenland, partly because of the snowy conditions. So if you want to leave Nuuk, you really have to either charter a plane or a helicopter or go, go somewhere by boat. The people are, are very friendly. The population is Inuit mainly, but there are also a lot of Danish people who live here because the country is still a dependency on Denmark. Well, under the leaden sky of Greenland in the summer, a battle is being waged between the oil companies who want to exploit the region's hydrocarbon wealth and environmental campaigners who see their presence as being a sacrilege. What do Greenlanders themselves make of it? What's their attitude towards their natural wealth? I've met both locals and I also met the Premier, Kupik Kleist, on Tuesday. And both the locals and Mr Kleist are very much in favour of the oil industry coming to Greenland. Mr Kleist was arguing that the country needs its financial independence from Denmark. At the moment, Greenland still receives a block grant of more than a billion Danish kroners a year from the Danish government. Its main industry is sort of fishing and shrimp exports, but that's staying stable or declining. So he's arguing that the oil industry is one way for the country to get its independence. And you're talking here about financial independence from Denmark, not necessarily political independence? It's 
suppose they are a dependency, but they have their own elected government here. They still depend on Denmark for their defence, for example, but it's economic independence that they're desperately looking for. Greenland, as you pointed out, has only 56,000 people. Do they have the skills or the human resources to develop their hydrocarbon reserves on their own? No, they don't. I mean, that is one of the concerns, certainly when you talk to locals, even though they are in favour of the oil companies coming here, they're slightly worried about the influx of foreign labour. Uh, Can Energy, for example, the Scottish company that's currently drilling off the coast of Greenland, they've had to import a lot of their own uh, contractors here in order to do that. Under the licence agreements, you do have to involve local workers, but that's certainly one of the challenges. And Cairn, as you mentioned, is drilling at the moment. What kind of obstacles do they face? What kind of practical difficulties are there to drilling in the incredibly hostile environment of the waters off Greenland? As you say, one of the main ones has been the weather. I arrived here on Monday, which was shift change day. They had a crew that was all kitted up in emergency suits, ready to go out on the helicopter onto the rig, which is about 200 kilometres off the shore of Nuuk. And they had a turn back after two attempts of landing on the rig because of fog. So you've got the weather, you've got the snow and the ice conditions. The companies that are going to be here, they can only actually drill here during the summer months when the ice has melted. So you've got very short winter. Window, you're spending a lot of money on the wells. Can spending $100 million per well at the moment. They're planning on drilling four wells this summer season. So it, it's a costly exercise, but the promise, I guess, is very big. Just how big is the promise? What's their assessment of how much oil waits to be discovered? Well, there are predictions from independent organisations that the entire Arctic region, so not just Greenland, could hold up to a quarter of the world's undiscovered reserves. So it's a big chunk of wealth. The government's also due to hold another licence round early next year in the northeast of Greenland, which could possibly hold even more oil and gas. And again, Mr Kleist, the Premier, was saying that he's had a lot of interest from some of the world's leading oil companies. I mean, he wouldn't identify who, but we can assume that the likes of Exxon, Chevron, Shell and others will certainly be looking at the data Sylvia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Let's move to the mining sector and the impact that high oil and gas prices are having on production costs. Joining me in the studio to tell us more is the FT's mining correspondent, Will McNamara. Will, just how big a deal is this for the world's mining sector? Well, I guess the point of departure is that the miners are doing almost better than they ever have. Profit margins are extremely high. The one serious worry that mining companies, big and small, are talking about is a comprehensive rise in everything that goes into the mining process, whether it's steel balls for drilling or tires or explosives or diesel or even manpower. To some extent, a natural corollary of rising boom markets for commodities is that that the rising cost of everything that makes them goes up. But the big question here is whether the raw material and equipment price rises that we're seeing today are going to rise at the same scale they did in the last boom period from about 05 to 08. Which companies are particularly exposed to this? Are there any that are hit worse than others? It's hard to generalize, but in general, smaller mining companies are because the likes of BHP Billiton, the biggest mining company in the world, it's practically run like a global empire and it has such market clout that it can do bulk orders for things like tires or even electricity. 
there's a galaxy of smaller companies, and this is the same in oil and gas, that are the explorers, the finders, the venture capital-funded types, and they don't have the bulk to leverage. They can't negotiate down the price of rubber that goes into their tires. So I would say they're the most exposed. And is this increase in costs already having a real practical effect? I mean, are projects being cancelled, set back, delayed? Well, so far, the sector is so rich, generally speaking, that it is not collapsing profit margins, but denting them. And according to some, it's denting it pretty severely. I think the big problem we're looking at in the second half of this year that we're already in is a simple scarcity of availability in this type of equipment. At some point, the problem is not the cost of getting a drill. It's the simple lack of availability of any drills. Everyone in the world right now who has money and is in the copper mining business is trying to find more copper. They're trying to expand their copper mines. They're trying to resurrect old copper mines. And all of those activities require drills. And guess what? There ain't a lot of drill makers in the world. So one of the most severe complaints I hear, having talked to these companies big and small, is that whereas last year you might wait three months for a medium-sized drill, it can now be well over a year. And in some cases, the manufacturers are saying, if you're not an existing customer, don't come to us till 2014. We're just not going to have room for you until then. <laughs> so at some point, this type of trend chokes off new supply. That's certainly something we saw in the last 12 months leading up to the global financial crisis. What this really shows is just a kind of inherently inefficient cycle in this industry, where in down cycles, let's talk about copper. The price of copper falls. Copper projects are unviable. No one wants to invest in copper. Mining projects stop. Equipment orders stop. Equipment prices fall. Then everyone's pretty confident that the world is on a more solid economic footing. The banks are releasing capital for speculative mining projects. Everyone piles in all at the same time. Meanwhile, on the supplier side, capacity has not been raised. Prices can go through the roof. And I guess what I'm saying is that it's feast or famine. Will, thank you very much indeed. And let's move to our final topic for today. The news that ConocoPhillips, America's third largest integrated oil company, is to split into two publicly traded entities has raised the question over whether the whole concept of integrated energy companies has a future. Will other companies follow ConocoPhillips's example? Joining me in the studio to tell us more is the FT Lex writer, Vincent Boland. Vincent, when Jim Mulver, the chief executive of ConocoPhillips, announced the decision in principle to split the company in two, what was the essence of his argument? The essence of his argument was that the era of the integrated oil company is basically over, that having built up this model, that the benefits of being an integrated oil company are no longer as clear as they were. For instance, one of the great advantages of being an integrated oil company for many, many decades was that you could offer refining capacity to countries that had resources but no refining capacity. That's no longer really valid because oil-producing countries now always build their own refining capacity. And secondly, there's a complete glut of refining capacity around the world. So it doesn't work on, on that basis. That was one of the key arguments that he made. And the other was that all of the advantages and benefits that flowed on from that no longer accrue to the bottom line for integrated oil companies. So it's now time to disintegrate. And that's the way to release value. A lot of value has been locked up in fixed capital investments that can be released by splitting exploration from downstream activity. What about the question of risk? If you have both an upstream and downstream business, you avoid the very obvious problem of putting all your eggs in one basket. Surely Mr. Mulvey is now placing all of his eggs in one single basket. Yes, that is one of the big 
effects of disintegrating an oil company is that you do create two very different risk scenarios. I think that chief executives of oil companies have had their heads turned by the extent to which E&P companies have outperformed integrated oil companies on the stock market over the last 10 years. Integrated oil companies' returns have actually been very poor when you take everything into account. And the template for the disintegration was created by Marathon, which has at least increased the market value of its businesses by 50% by splitting in two. I think that's what lies behind a lot of this argument that Jim Mulvey made and that you know other CEOs must be looking at now. If the argument is so compelling, do you think that the major integrated companies will eventually follow Mr Mulvey's suggestion? I do, actually. I think the arguments become stronger as time goes on. And if you look at the seven or eight super majors around the world, they all have different issues that they face. Exxon, you could argue, has streamlined itself to such an extent that it's now a relentlessly forward-moving, capital-generating, dividend-paying machine. But as a $400 billion company, you can only add value at the margins, I think, in a company like Exxon. BP has obvious issues that everybody is well aware of. Shell is still in makeover mode after the reserves fiasco of a few years ago. ENI, the Italian company, is very much a sort of mishmash of oil services, distribution, exploration, marketing, etc. And Total is somewhere between Exxon and ENI. So I think they all have things that they could certainly look at. I think that one needs probably more proof than simply the marathon case that this is actually going to create the value for shareholders that CEOs think it will. You know, ConocoPhillips, the shares jumped 7% in the hours after the announcement last Thursday. But the sector as a whole hasn't really moved. Vincent, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Will McNamara and Vincent Boland in the studio in London and Sylvia Pfeiffer in Greenland. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.